test for his ordination. Three tests. Three tests. Passed them all. One more. And he's got, he's got one more test. It's the oral test where he sits before three different pastors and they ask basically anything. So if you have anything hard, just to get him ready for it, yes. just start coming up and asking him please, stuff. Please, right? Just start coming up and asking him yeah. stuff. But seriously, please be praying for Frank as that date comes up yeah. um, later in the fall. Yeah. And Frank, thank you for taking time to preach to yeah. us and open God's Word. We love you. All right. After a hiatus from pre-COVID numbers, we are witnessing the return of the summer Hollywood blockbuster, with moviegoers flocking to theaters to see the likes of movies such as Sound of Freedom, Mission Impossible, and even Barbie. Now, you don't have to be a diehard movie buff to know that the biopic Oppenheimer was also released in movie theaters recently. Now, this is not an endorsement for that movie, being as I have yet to see, see it, and I would hate for all of you to go after the service or sometime during the week and see the movie and find that there's graphic or explicit content only to hit up our Center Church email account saying, the guy that preached, he said it was okay to watch. No, this is not an endorsement for that movie. But the director of Oppenheimer is Christopher Nolan, and if you enjoy some of his other films, films such as Inception, Dunkirk, or even Interstellar, you probably have your favorite. And what I'm about to say might be an unpopular opinion among hardcore Nolanites. But I believe one of his best, one of his most compelling and most underrated films is his third installation in his Batman trilogy, or The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight Rises offers a much darker spin on the Batman saga than the films from the 90s. You remember the ones with Michael Keaton and I believe Val Kilmer, and I might be missing another Batman character. And it's a far, far cry from the Batman portrayed by Adam West in the 60s. In The Dark Knight Rises, Batman is viewed by the people of Gotham as public enemy number one. He's wrongfully accused of the murder of Harvey Dent, and what Nolan does masterfully, mind you, is he uses the silver screen to give us Batman's story of redemption. And it comes as Batman faces his strongest, most powerful foe, Bane. Now, the character Bane, he represents all that is evil, and he's set on destroying the city of Gotham and its inhabitants. Throughout the movie, Bane levels taunts at Batman as he tries to show Batman that all of his efforts to, efforts to save Gotham and the people of Gotham will be futile. Everything he does will end in defeat and ultimately death. Batman, through much of the movie, teeters on the brink of losing all hope. But in the end, it's Batman's love for the people of Gotham. Despite their hatred of him, remember he's public enemy number one, that eventually gives Batman the hope to endure and the courage to defeat Bane and save the city he so loves, thus vindicating himself as he appears to lay down his life for his accusers. The one who was accused by those he served 
freely laid down his life for his accusers. Now that's a story that sounds familiar, right? Well, this isn't a sermon about Batman. Although Batman does show us something about our hearts. We all love a good underdog story. We all love a story where the, the odds are stacked against the protagonist. Stories that are filled with hope and redemption. This is because we're hardwired to believe in a greater story of hope and redemption. Today, we'll see that Psalm 119 gives us another story of hope. One where the psalmist finds himself facing insurmountable odds. We'll find someone who faces the prospect of being taunted. Someone who's embedded in a precarious situation that will potentially rob him of all hope. This is because Psalm 119 was most likely written at a particular time in Israel's history. A time in which the Jewish people were exiled from Jerusalem. One commentator writes of this. The time of the composition of Psalm 119, judging by its setting in Book 5 of the Psalter, points to the age of exile. It was the time when no temple, no sacrifice, no priesthood functioned in faraway Jerusalem. So, what are the pious displaced people to do? How can they carry on with their worship? So far as current historical investigation is concerned, little or nothing is known of the life habits of the exiles in Babylon. Their modus vivendi completely eludes us. Yet it is unimaginable that they would live life without regulated worship. Psalm 119 gives us a glimpse into what life was like for the Israelite worshiper who had no place to offer sacrifice. He had no place to experience God's special presence among his people. Therefore, throughout this psalm, the word of God is extolled. It is the modus vivendi for the Israelite people during their exile. This is the one thing the worshiper could pattern his or her life after. The psalmist needed God's word to give him hope, to give him courage to press on. Now, the Christian life is quite similar. It is one of pilgrimage. We might not be physically, physically exiled to a distant and faraway land, but we're not home in this world. Rather, we are spiritual exiles in a world that seems to oppose us at each turn in our lives. Our goal for this time is to see how Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48, show us that we're not left without a light in a dark world. In circumstances where we too are encompassed by opposition. In these verses, and in this entire psalm, what we have are the very words of God meant to sustain and uphold us when faced with the hardships of living in a fallen world. These words that are written to elicit, to bring about a response in us, 
which is this, to cause us to treasure and delight in God's Word. These are words written to give us hope and courage to press on. My proposition, my big idea from this text is pretty simple. Now, I'm going to say a lot of words like I have already. I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, some 4,500 words. So if there's anything that we take away from this sermon, anything that we grab onto that we can talk about at the dinner table during the week, I pray it's this. A life submitted to God and His Word doesn't always lead to safety. But it does bring delight. Open your Bible with me to Psalm 119. We'll begin, we'll begin reading at verse 41. This is God's Word meant to give us hope and courage to press on. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, <clears throat> your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Our first point this morning is the premise of our hope. What should immediately jump out to us as we consider this passage is just how personal and intimate of a prayer it is for the psalmist. As Jim pointed out in our first week in our time in Psalm 119, the psalmist uses the second person form of you, or your, to appeal to and to address God. This isn't someone who merely knows that God exists and tries to speak about God in an abstract way. This is someone who truly knows God. And it's inviting us in to experience his intimate conversation with God. Now, there's some low-hanging fruit for us to apply this passage. I think there is a media application here, especially when it comes to how we pray. Let me ask you all a question. Have you ever been asked to pray in front of your small group? Or in front of a group of people, maybe at Thanksgiving dinner or at Christmas time? And you start to be bogged down by how you feel others are going to think about your prayer. I've been there. We've all, we've all been there. The Psalms help us to view prayer as simply a conversation with God. Prayer isn't a show. It's not meant to show how much we know uh, as far as our grammar and having an expansive vocabulary. We don't have to worry about what others think about our prayers, and we don't have to use fancy language. We don't have to dress up our prayers to make it sound better than someone else's. The psalmist of Psalm 119, 
He doesn't use complicated theological language. He simply states how he feels about his situation and what he knows to be true of God in light of it. We see this when he tells God exactly how he feels throughout Psalm 119. He makes every request known to the Lord. First off, in verse 41, the psalmist calls upon the Lord for salvation to come to him according to God's promise. There was a situation our writer is facing which requires God's rescue. Now, what was it that would provide him with rescue? The psalmist asks for God's steadfast love to visit him. Now, steadfast love is a very common theme in the, in, in the Scriptures and especially in the Psalms. The Psalter is replete with mention of God's steadfast love. What's interesting for us, though, is how in verse 41, the psalmist links steadfast love to salvation. We're intended to read this and understand that salvation and God's steadfast love they're inextricably linked together. They are bound up with one another. What this does is it combats any notion of salvation being something we work for or something that is formulaic in its nature. Salvation doesn't work like a vending machine that we go to and that we put in a little bit of something and God gives us a get-out-of-hell free card in return. There are no works, no deeds, nothing that we can offer that can save us. Salvation is obtainable solely on the basis of God's steadfast love. Now for us, as New Covenant believers, we have the fullest display of God's steadfast love in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that our salvation is made possible only through the work that Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. But what did it mean for someone 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago? Someone under the old covenant, what did it mean for them to call upon God's steadfast love? To answer this question, you must go back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, Moses is given the stone tablets a second time. And not only does God reveal himself on these stone tablets through the law given at the mount, but God also reveals who he is in his character to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 6 reads, The Lord passed before him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This comes after God miraculously delivers the people of Israel from their slavery to Egypt. 
Now, you might have heard this before, but some folks mistakenly say, well, the God of the Old Testament is one of wrath and vengeance, but the God of the New Testament is one of love and mercy, or some iteration of that. But the pages of Scripture tell us something entirely different. God abounds in steadfast love from Genesis 1-1 all the way on through Revelation. God keeps on loving His people. This is what the writer of Psalm 119 knew to be true of God. God abounds in love, keeps on loving His people. It's exactly who God is. This has massive implications for us in the 21st century. It has implications for how we're to think about what God does in our lives and what He does in the world around us. With our high view of God's sovereignty, which simply means His control and involvement in the world around us, we have to see that everything God does, He does in love. What do I mean by this? Well, His merciful, this is a softball, His merciful and gracious work in saving you from your sin, it's love, right? Here's where it gets a little bit harder. His justice displayed in punishing the sins of non-believers, it's love. And maybe this hits a little bit closer to home. His appointing a trial in your life, a thorn in the flesh, so to speak, something to cause you to love and depend on Him more, that's an act of love from a God who abounds in steadfast love. He is always loving even when life doesn't make sense. When life is spinning out of con control, God abounds in steadfast love. We can't disconnect God's love from His other attributes. It's who He is. And we can trust in this sovereign and loving God because He abounds in steadfast love. And since He does abound in love, We know that He has plans to use our pain, to use the suffering we go through for His purposes. Because He's good just as much as He is loving. He's kind just as much as He is just. It's who our God is. So, our psalmist in Psalm 119, in verse 41, when he appeals to God's steadfast love, he bases his appeal upon the person and work of the One who can do all things. He appeals to the God who rescued His people out of Egypt from their bondage to Pharaoh. This is the same God who can deliver the psalmist from any trial. He has a firm confidence in that truth. My friends, this too is our God. If you're going through something this morning, 
He's rescued his people before. He'll do it again. But deliverance doesn't always look the way that we want it to. Which leads to our second point, the presence of intense hardship. As I mentioned in the opening, the psalmist most likely found himself in a foreign land, possibly Babylon, a place where the people didn't know the God of Israel. And if they did, they weren't inclined to worship him as God. In fact, the Babylonian disposition toward the worshipers of Yahweh would have been one of hostility. We catch a glimpse of this in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 61 through 63. Jeremiah writes, You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and rising. I am the object of their taunts. Plots and taunts. This is not exactly the ideal living situation. We can assume our psalmist experienced the, the taunts and jeers of those he lived amongst. This wasn't hypothetical for him. He was well acquainted with, it, with what it was like to be slandered and maligned for his faith. Now we're going to do a thought exercise for just a moment. Imagine with me, you're sound asleep in your bed, catching your Z's, all is well, and you hear a loud boom at the front door, and men come barging in dressed in tactical gear armed with assault rifles. Your kids, they're screaming their heads off as they're ripped away from their room, and your wife is crying hysterically as she is also taken, and then... To make matters much worse, you're bound up. You can't do anything. Obviously, this is for the men. And you're removed from your home and your country against your will. And when you finally arrive at the land of your captors, to rub salt in the wound, you're taunted for being a Christian. How would you respond? Now, we don't know with certainty what the future holds for our country. With the current trajectory of our nation and Western culture at large, we could face some level of persecution for our faith in our lifetime. We already live in a post-Christian world that's growing in its animus toward the Christian faith. But I don't want us to get caught up in those details. That's a different sermon for a different time, probably for rich I want us to focus in on the psalmist's response. What does the psalmist do? In the face of his adversaries, he proclaims, I shall have an answer for him who taunts me. How does he get there? Well, he says, For I trust in your word. God's word and the deliverance that accompanies those who trust in God's word is what provides the psalmist's answer to those who taunt him. The psalmist believed that God would deliver him. Remember, he's seen it before. He's sung about it in temple before. He's read about it in Torah with his buddies before. He knew that God would deliver him. So I ask the question again, 
how would you respond to being captured and exiled? Or what will your response be when you're taunted for being a Christian? Do you think of ways to get revenge by engaging in some online debate on Instagram or Facebook, threads? Do you think of ways you can argue your way to victory with your opponent? Or do you think of some ad hominem attack and try to tear down your opponent by exposing some character flaw or weakness? The psalmist's disposition which is one we should share, is he had a resolute trust in the revelation of God, his word. Our first move when we're faced with taunts or the prospect of being taunted shouldn't be to defend ourselves from said plots and taunts. Like military officers who consult a field manual for their strategy and tactics, our first move should be to look to this field manual should be to look to God's Word to provide us with answers to those who taunt us. Only God's Word will provide us with hope because God's Word tells us exactly who our God is. He's a deliverer who rescues His people. Think of how Jesus answered the taunts of Satan in the desert in Matthew 4. Every reply of our Lord was taken directly from where? The Scriptures. Also, Peter wrote of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friend, when you're slandered, when you're maligned for your faith, which, if you haven't already, it's coming, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. How do we get to know this one who judges justly? Through his word. Now, with the insane amount of distractions that encircle us all the time, and when life gets hard, it's tempting to place our faith and our hope in lesser things. But we shouldn't be so quick to place our hope in things that only disappoint us and let us down. Maybe you're tempted to place your hope in a particular political candidate. Someone who will rectify all the evils and ills of our world. Maybe you're tempted to place your hope in retirement planning thinking about, oh, it's coming. I can't wait to hit those links. Thinking about where all of your 401k and your, your funds are going to go. Or maybe it's having peace in your family. Maybe you just really desire and hope for peace that lasts at Christmas time. Or maybe it's your health and all of your hope is wrapped up in that. All of these are good things. They are. We, but we must not view them as ultimate. These things shouldn't be the primary focus in our life. This is because these things will not provide us with peace when our faith is being tested. Only God's Word will cause us to have an increased hope in God. 
Which makes sense, right? It makes sense. Only, only reading God's Word will increase our hope in God's Word because when we read God's Word and learn about who He is, we can grow in our affection for God. When we read God's Word and learn about what He's done in the past for His people, it increases our confidence in His wonder-working power in the present. So our primary focus should always be God's Word. A few verses after the psalmist mentions facing the prospect of being taunted, in verse 46, he writes of how he will speak of God's testimonies before kings, and he will not be put to shame. When we read this verse, we have to understand the historical context in which it's written. The prophet Jeremiah, again, he proves helpful for us as he tells us what King Nebuchadnezzar was like, who was actually the Babylonian king who was responsible for the exile of the Jews. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 52, verses 10 through 11, The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. It's pretty ruthless. Safe to say that Nebuchadnezzar was vicious. Anyone who can force their prisoner to watch the death of their children as the very last thing they see with their eyes and then remove their eyes, that's vicious. So when the psalmist mentions being brought before kings, this isn't something he looks forward to. He was well aware of what kings were capable of. But even if brought before kings, our psalmist's hope and his courage is resolute because he stands upon an authority that's higher than the kings of this world. He stands upon the authority of the testimonies of God. More specifically, when the psalmist speaks of God's testimonies, he's testifying to what God has done in the past for Israel. Imagine that. Standing before the king who exiled your people only to tell him, my God will deliver us. That's a power move. Just as the writer of this psalm had faith to believe that God would act on his, on his behalf, when our feet are firmly planted upon God's word, we too can face any human authority and not be put to shame. If you're ever placed in front of a human authority and fear that there may be reprisal for being a Christian, take heart in knowing that God will always protect and be with His people. As privileged as we are to have a constitution that protects our freedoms as individuals, if faced with persecution, our hope shouldn't be in amendments. Our hope should not be in those civil rights. Because we're citizens of a greater kingdom than any earthly kingdom or republic. Our hope should be in the Lord who alone is able to rescue us as His covenant people. While this world and all of its evils present us with intense hardship, we can stand before kings knowing 
but our God will vindicate us because he's always, always at work to preserve and protect a people for his glory. But that begs the question, what does it look like to preserve and protect a people? We might think it would mean removing us from the situation altogether. The psalmist shows us something entirely different, which brings us to our third and final point, the promise of true delight. God's word shows us what the basis of our hope is, his steadfast love, and and it also shows us that our hope can increase during times of intense hardship. And according to the psalmist, we're also promised true delight. Look at me at the final two verses of our stanza, verses 47 and 48. Verse 47 in our English Bibles begins with the word for, which serves as a conjunction to the prior verse. Not only is the result of living a submitted life one of having confidence in front of kings, but the ultimate result that we receive is delight. True, enduring delight is the only possible outcome for those who submit themselves to God and His Word. This is the message of the stanza, and this is the overall message of Psalm 119. Then in verse 48, we read how the psalmist is so overcome by delight that it causes him to lift his hands and worship to God for having revealed himself through his word. Now, our Sunday morning liturgy, what we do during our worship services, they're constructed in such a way that highlights the primacy or the centrality of God's word. It's what we build our services around. We pay careful attention to focus our efforts on singing God's word, reading scripture from God's word, praying God's Word, and preaching from God's Word. We do this with the hopes that it wouldn't just stop here. After you leave the building on Sunday mornings and then you're just left to your own. Our desire as a church is that as you experience worship with God's people on a Sunday, that it sets a pattern for your life the rest of the week. We do this because we know that only by rooting our corporate or our collective experience in God's Word will we be able to have an increased knowledge of God in our individual worship as well. And having an increased knowledge of who God is maximizes or it increases our joy and delight in the Lord. Knowing God leads to delighting in God. Or, to get fancy with it, theology leads to doxology. But we're not told that the psalmist's situation resolved. As a matter of fact, the situation gets worse. As Zach will preach next week, and as we go on later in Psalm 119, we will find that this psalmist, (laughs) life gets hard. Life is hard in exile safe to say the psalmist world, it didn't get any brighter, but it got darker. But the psalm doesn't tell us 
Why me, Lord? Why do I have to go through this? Nor does it tell us, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't allow me to go through all of these bad things. Instead, we're given a picture in this psalm of a man who trusts in God and lives submitted to God's word. Delight is reserved for those who experience pain and suffering in this world who submit themselves to God and his word. How can this be? Because the only one who never sinned and who experienced the pain and suffering of this world was put to death on our behalf. Look with me at the Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The Bible tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew there was joy reserved for his suffering. My friend, if you're going through something, look to Jesus. There's joy and delight reserved for you. Now, you might not feel yourself as abounding in joy. You might not feel If you're a Christian, you might not feel glad in the Lord. You might not feel the delight of the Lord right now. It's okay if you're lacking joy. Just don't stay there. If you find yourself lacking joy, there are some very practical ways that we can pursue joy together. First one, we can pray. As a believer, you have access to to the throne of God, and you can approach Him boldly, and you can pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see wondrous things from His Word. You can also pray that God would remind you of His steadfast love that He's shown you in Christ. Second, you can spend time with people who are pursuing a Word-centered, Christ-exalting life. Fellowship with other believers, helps us to remember who we are. As you gather with God's people, it helps you to remember that we're citizens of a better kingdom than the one we currently reside in. As we get to know people, we come to find that people suffer. Christians don't have it all together. But we are a confessing bunch We are a resolute bunch because of what Jesus has done for us. God's people know how to suffer well with purpose and with joy. And at our church, we've made it very easy to get to know other believers. One way to do that is by signing up for a small group. You can attend a small group with people who don't act like you, who might be in a different tax bracket than you, And you'll see 
that money doesn't lead to happiness. Only Jesus brings true joy. Another way you can get involved in the life of other believers is by serving together. Through your service, you get to know other Christians, and you get to learn things about them. So I'd encourage you, pursue that. Pursue community with other believers because it's good for you. It's good for me. Another way we can experience the joy and delight of the Lord is through witnessing to non-believers. Evangelism helps to shift our eyes off of ourselves, and it gets us out of our comfort zone. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a conversation with someone who is not a Christian, but it really confronts you with how little you know about Jesus. But I'd encourage you, press in. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend. Press into that relationship. Share Jesus with them. Now, if you're not a Christian, all of this, it's not for you. True joy, abiding comfort, and delight are not for you. Life is going to look different for you. You're probably seeking meaning and purpose and all that the world has to offer. Maybe it's a job, a career, or even pursuing having a big family, or even a small family, and making that your ultimate aim in life. And these things, they might provide a modicum of comfort. Maybe a little bit of joy will come through these things. But when the inevitable sting of suffering comes, which it will, those things will move on. They only provide you with joy and delight and comfort for so long. So look to Jesus for your comfort. Look to Him for your hope and for your joy. Look to Jesus for delight because nothing and no one gives delight like Jesus does. There are many Christians here who would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. And you can speak with any one of us, but I know if it were me, that might be a little intimidating. So what you can do is reach out to our email, info at centergilbert.com, and ask a question. Ask to meet with a pastor. Or ask to eat, to eat a meal with another Christian just to see what the Christian life is all about. My friends, the message of Psalm 119, it runs antithetical to the world's message. The world says pursue joy, pursue comfort, pursue love and hope, and everything that it has to offer. And that will make you happy. That will bring fulfillment. But I hope what you walk away with during our time in the Psalms, in Psalm 119, is this. The truly good life is a life that's submitted to God and His Word. And while living this good life doesn't always bring us comfort or safety, we can always experience true joy and delight in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are 
humbled that you would choose such ordinary means to communicate to us. You choose words written on pages long, long ago to reveal who you are to us. And you have sent your Son to die a criminal's death to give us the ultimate revelation of who you are. And then you would choose flawed preachers like myself to testify to who this Jesus is. We're humbled that you would do that. But now we ask, Lord, we ask that you would apply the truths of your word by your Holy Spirit to our hearts. We don't want to be just hearers of your word. We want to be doers of your word as well. So, send down your spirit. Move in the hearts of your people. And those who are not your own, I pray, Lord, make them your own this morning. Even if it's one. We pray and ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.